Father, thanks for your goodness to us this morning. So we open up your word. Would you speak to our hearts? Would you speak to our minds? Would you help make sense of this challenging book to us? God, would we walk out of here changed and different by your spirit, through your word, God, in the midst of your community called the church? God, would you be kind to us and meet us this morning? We ask that you would do it. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, good morning. You can grab uh, a Bible if you don't have one and open it up to Revelation. That's the back of your Bible. We are in uh, a 12-week series. This is week four of the book of Revelation. We're walking all the way through the 22 chapters in it. And if you're unfamiliar with the book of Revelation, or if you're somewhat familiar, let me just remind us how we're studying this book. We're looking at it thematically in kind of two chapter chunks at a time as it's often laid out and scholars look at it that way. And for many of us, we kind of, maybe if, you, if we've read Revelation or if we've been in the subculture of the church, we might think like Revelation's this kind of code book to decode like when Jesus is coming back. But actually, as we've talked and as we've seen, this is apocalyptic literature that should cause imagination in us to swell up and go like, how do we live right now? As I was thinking about this recently, I was just thinking about if, if you only watch TV uh, and the only TV you ever watched was 1980s sitcoms. So if you've never seen a 1980s sitcom, they're, very, they're, they're 28 minutes long, there's a problem, there's, there's some type of clear answer, it gets wrapped up in a bow, it's nice and neat, it's linear, you can understand it, it's kind of corny. Like, uh, and, and if you only watch 1980s sitcoms, and then all of a sudden, somebody threw in a current reality show in that mix. You would, like, you would watch it and go, like, what, what is this? This is insane, right? For those of you that are watching The Golden Bachelor right now. You, you, but, but we understand what reality shows are like right now because we're involved in them. But it would feel disorienting if you've never watched a reality show and the 1980s sitcoms were the only thing you watched in TV. You would go, what, what is this? And a lot of the times as we read our Bible, that's somewhat what is happening because we read, we love the Pauline letters, right? They're linear, they're straightforward, they make sense to us. And then we get this apocalyptic literature at the end of the Bible and we're like, what is this? But again, the people that would have been reading this book, and so our job as Bible readers today in 2023 is to go like, what, what was the actual audience understanding from this letter that was written to these seven churches? They understood apocalyptic literature. They understood the language that John is using from the Old Testament apocalyptic language and the current Roman culture language. It would have made sense to them. But for us in 2023, we're so removed from it, we get confused. And so some of the work we have to do is go, what does this actually mean? We have to do some translation. And we've said this, we'll continue to say this, just to give us some grids, some, some lanes to run down of the book of Revelation is this. The purpose of the book is to disciple Christians to be discerning, dissonant worshipers and witnesses of Jesus. In the midst of their Roman culture that was not following the way of Jesus, they need to be discerning to understand what that culture is and how the influences are bleeding into the way they follow Jesus, which is what we looked at in chapter 2 and 3, these letters to these seven churches and how they need correction from the idolatry that has bled into the way they worship Jesus. They need to be discerning on that. They need to be dissonant. They need to push against that culture, not follow it, and that produces worshipers and witnesses 
of the person of Jesus. That's what the book is trying to do. It should be very active for us today. And what we're going to look at this morning is chapters 6 and 7. We saw last week as John gets kind of this peek behind the curtain, he sees the throne room of God in chapters 4 and 5, and everything is centered around God on his throne, and then he sees the, the angels and, and the different creation worshiping God appropriately, and then he sees this scroll in the hand of God on the throne, and it has the answers to the brokenness of the world, and no one is worthy to open it. And he starts weeping because that, that has the answer, but he looks around and nobody's worthy to open and he's weeping and he's broken. In the midst of that, the elder comes to him and says, wait, there's somebody that is worthy, the lion of Judah. And he turns, he hears it's, it's a lion and he turns and he sees a slain lamb representing Jesus Christ and his work on the cross that's alive and then can open the seal. And what we're going to see in chapters 6 and 7 is those seals beginning to get opened. What does that actually look like? And this is symbolic imagery to communicate God's means of justice in a wicked world. That God would fix the rights that are wrong, that he would look at our world and he would go, that's not okay. And at one point, as as patient as he is, he's going, I'm not going to let that continue to happen. And so we're going to look at the, the, really the seven seals that are going to be uh, broken this morning in the text, really in chapter 6. We'll kind of hold that seventh seal. That'll start in chapter 8. And then uh, we're going to see seven trumpets of judgment that we'll see next week. And then in a couple weeks in chapter 15, we'll see seven bowls poured out of what is God doing in his execution of judgment in a wicked world. And what does that mean for us today? Now, there's some debate even in the chapters we're going to be looking at. There's, there's lots of debate in Revelation. Man, you can go down the rabbit hole, you guys. I mean, there's some crazy stuff out there and some rightly interpreted stuff, but, but on all kinds of ways. Again, we're not going to focus on the minutia in the details. We're going to look at the bigger picture of what is John trying to communicate? What is Jesus trying to communicate through John to us currently? And so some of the debate that we're going to get into in chapter 6 is that some people think, man, um, this already happened. They're worried about when is this happening. This already happened. It already took place. Some are going like, no, it's happening now. And then some are going like, no, this is a future event that's going to happen. I'm less interested in when and more of like, what does it do to us? And how do we lean in to being discipled in what's going on here? So hopefully that gives us some lanes to run down. And in the midst of us understanding what's going on in these two chapters, in the whole book, we ha again, we have to put ourselves in the shoes of the original reader. And to do that, I, I want to talk about expectations. Because we all understand, man, when our expectations don't get met, don't we? Like it, it could be as, as little or as small as you go to a restaurant, you see um, something on the menu that looks good to you, you order that thing and then it comes out differently or you taste it and it's not what you expected and then all of a sudden you're disappointed, you're confused, you're frustrated at that order. It could be as simple as that of those expectations or it could be something like, man, you, you have expectations of what marriage is. And you're engaged and you think your spouse is going to do those things or you think marriage will look this way and then you get married and you go, I never expected that. Like I, I, like, and, it, and it's deeply disorienting, it's deeply painful in you. And so we all have different levels of expectations and when those expectations don't get met, it's confusion, it's disappointment. When the reality doesn't meet our expectations, we're confused. 
Now, the reason I say all that is let, let's, let's think about the original readers of this letter, these seven churches that, that John is writing to. The scholars believe that this took place in the, the mid-90s AD, so about 30, or I'm, I'm sorry, about 60 years after Jesus lived, died, and rose again, 60 years later. Think of the expectations. John is writing this in exile from uh, an island called Patmos, and he's going, I've seen him heal the lame. I walked with Jesus when he, he healed this crippled hand of this man. I've seen him heal Lazarus from the dead. When he died and we thought all hope was lost, I was the first one at the tomb. I beat Peter there. I was there. And I walked in and I saw his clothes and he was risen and I experienced the risen Christ. And then I saw him ascend to the right hand of the Father and I saw him send the Holy Spirit to his church to begin to change people to this new reality. And what's happening right now? You gotta think, he's gotta be going, okay, this is gonna be the end. He, God's gonna restore all things rightly and then it's 60 years later and Christians are being killed. They're being persecuted by the Roman Empire. They're being thrown into Colosseums to die. They're being lit on fire to kill them. How disorienting is that for the early church? And for John, going like this, it should be getting better. It's getting worse. He's got to be super confused by this. And I think that's helpful for us to realize and for us to realize that sometimes we get lulled into sleep in the midst of our expectations. Because of the idolatry of our culture and living in the West in a prosperous space, not all of us, but many of us, we kind of get um, lullabied and rocked to sleep with consumerism and just easy things and happy things. And so then we have these expectations that everything should work out well. And we need to be reminded, just like the church in chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 3, going, you need to wake up. Church, you need to wake up to your reality. A.W. Tozer says it this way, this quote. He says, people think the world is not a battleground but a playground. People think the world is not a battleground but a playground. And some of that, because of our culture, we believe that. We think we're just here to have fun and have a good time and it's just great. And we need to realize we're actually in a war. Like we're actually in a place that should be confusing to us. It should feel disorienting to us as, as we're Christians. It doesn't mean you can't have any joy or any fun. But sometimes we think that's the only thing. I was in a conversation with my wife this week. And she let me know that we had a bill that I wasn't expecting, a medical bill. And it wasn't even that much money. But like I just came undone. I, I, I was just like... Because we've kind of been working to kind of chip our way out of some, some certain financial things. And it just feels like I can never get ahead. And I, I, you might have thought, like, took, take my arm off. or Like, I was really just kind of like, because oh, I felt so frustrated. And then I realized as I'm reading this, like, why do I think it should be easy? Like, what the text is going to tell us today, what the whole Bible tells us today, is that because of the brokenness in our world, we should have an understanding that we're not in a playground, we're in a battleground. Man, we just need to be reminded of that. We come into this room, drive here with our air conditioning cars and drink our coffee, thanks Bogdan, and eat donuts. And we just feel comfortable. But if we knew we were in the midst of a battle, wouldn't we operate differently? 
We probably would. So again, that just gives us some understanding because what's going to happen in chapter 6 is it's going to touch on every aspect of evil. Social strife, ecological disaster, sickness unto death, religious persecution, and natural catastrophe, or as the Bible Project says in their video, just an average day in the human existence. Because we're at, at war. Because of sin, there's a battle that we are fighting. And sometimes we just need to be reminded of that. And what we're going to see in the text, if you're writing down a big idea, it's just going to be in the form of a question Charles read at the end of the text, but it's this, is who can stand? In the midst of this battle, in the midst of the war that we're fighting, that some of us are asleep to, like who can actually stand in the midst of that? That's where I hope to answer from the text this morning. As we jump in, what we're going to see in chapter 6 is there's seven seals that are going to be um, broken, and, and we're going to see God's judgment, his righteous judgment come down on the earth. And the first four seals you might be familiar with are the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and so we're going to talk about the meaning of those things and, and, and what's the goal there. But I love this language from Eugene Peterson, not only for the four horsemen, but also for our expectations of a battlefield versus a playground. And he says this, the first four unsealings show four horses. The horse is the animal for the battle. Oxen for the farming, donkeys for transportation, horses for battle. The basic nature of history is warfare. Persons who live by faith live in conflict. History is a long sequence of battles. The forces of good and evil pitched in conflict. Sensitive persons know this. Artists know this. Students of history lay bare the documenting sources. People of prayer are in the middle even when the guns are silent. The battle rages within the soul. It's fought out in family circles. It's contested between nations. War is the human condition. To be human is to be at war. I just think that's good, helpful language for us to be reminded of as we come into this text and we realize we're fighting a spiritual battle all the time. So, let's look at the text. If you have a Bible, open it up. If it's not already there, to Revelation chapter 6. So, I'm just going to walk through uh, these six seals, and then we're going to talk about it. And then we'll look at and what John does is he kind of pivots, and um, he's going to give an interlude in chapter 7. And I'll kind of explain that. That's where it's going to go in the text. This is chapter 6, starting in verse 1. He says, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, come. And I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. This first seal, again, I'm just going to give some cultural commentary on um, all of these seals. The first one is, is actually wildly confusing. There's scholars that believe totally different things about who this actual uh, white horse, who is on this white horse. I tend to believe that um, this has to do with uh, external conquest on display. And some of the reason I believe that is there were these uh, enemies of Rome to the east, the eastern border, they were called the Parthenons, and uh, they came and actually sacked Rome, and they rode white horses, and they used bows in their battle. And so I, I think that what this represents is this external conquest, that there's always going to be somebody from outside of your borders trying to come in and take over, and we'll see this time and time and time again in our world in the midst of God executing 
his judgment or uh, um, giving us over to our sins, as Romans 1 says. So that's the first seal. Let's look at the second. Verse 4. Another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. I think what this horseman represents is a social evil on display, internal war. If the first horse is about external war, somebody conquering you, the, the, the second horse is about internal conflict. And we see this everywhere in our world. We see it in the narrative of scripture. The first scene we see in Genesis chapter four after sin enters in and the brokenness is we see a brother killing another brother with violence and blood. And that is some of the reality of our brokenness. That's the second horse, second seal. Let's look to the third, down halfway through verse five. I looked, and therefore before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures say, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. This seal, this horse, the third one, um, represents ecological evil on display. A famine in the midst of our world being cursed, the land being cursed. If you're unfamiliar, excuse me, verse 6, you see two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds for a barley of day's wages. You might have denarii, which is a day's wages in your text. That's, that's basically ten times the inflation rate for those things. So be like if you pulled up to the gas station, you need gas to get into your car, to go to your job. It's a, it's a normal thing that you have to have. And you pull up to the gas station and it says $50 a gallon. And you're going like, this isn't right. But you see, oh, but let's protect the oil and the wine. The things that are precious to the people that have wealth, they get to hold on to those things. But the things that the common person needs are unavailable because of this inflation rate. There's brokenness and ecological evil. Let's look at the fourth horse, verse eight. I looked and therefore before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague and wild beasts of the earth. This is biological evil put on display. All right, sickness that leads to death. And when you look at these four horsemen, if, if you've been with us for a while and you see the ramifications of sin, it's not just our brokenness or separation from God. That's definitely true. But what we've talked about holistically is we have a brokenness with the land. We see that in the third horse, that, that, that things are not right with our land and, and things are not right with each other and things are not right within us. There's brokenness put on display because of these four horsemen that God is using to make things right again. Let's keep going. Verse 9, let's look at this fifth seal. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain by the word of God and witnesses that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then they were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were being killed as they themselves had been. A 
This fifth seal has to do with religious persecution, that the people that have stepped out and, and said and, and proclaimed the name of Jesus and have died because of that faith, died because of that proclamation, they're crying out, God, how long are you going to let this happen? This is not right. It echoes the psalmist of how long. And again, for us, it's hard sometimes in our context to understand we're not under persecution like some of our brothers and sisters in Christ in other parts of the world, that if they say the name of Jesus out loud, they're risking their lives. And we sometimes don't remember that, but it's true. Let's look at this sixth seal, verse 12. It says, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake the sun became black as sackcloth. The moon, the full moon became like blood and the stars in the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain island was removed from its place. This is cosmic disruption. And what John is doing is he's taking direct language from Isaiah 34 and Joel 2. Again, the original readers would understand this, this language of the day of the Lord. Jesus uses this language, and he takes it from Isaiah 34 and Joel 2 and Matthew 24 when he gives this description. And what this is talking about is when empires will eventually fall. They will not do the thing they're doing now. And if you think about it, even the language of sun and stars and moon, the Greek and the Romans, I mean, they worshiped the sun and the stars and the moon, just like the Egyptians worshiped the sun and the stars and the moon. And one day those empires will fall, the things we worship. We don't worship the sun and the stars and the moon. We worship like sex, money, power. Those things will one day fall. And the day of the Lord, it will not be anything we can get from. And so... In the midst of everything by which human beings get their bearings are now dropped and, and gone. Like, what is the reaction of that, of the people? Let's look at verse 15. It says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in caves and among rocks and mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks. Fall on us and hide from us the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of the wrath has come. And who can stand? In the midst of these things happening, what is the reaction of the people? It's to run and it's to hide. This hiding language, again, should, should, should perk our ears up if we're familiar with the Bible and we've read the Bible. In Genesis 3, the first time Adam and Eve sin, and there's a disruption because of sin and now in the narrative, and then God in his holy presence comes to, to hang out with them, to be with them in the garden. What's the first thing they do because of their sin? They run and they hide. And these people that don't worship God, what are they doing? Because of God's judgment being executed in his holiness and his rightness, they run and they hide and they say, man, if these mountains could fall over and just kill us, that would be better than the wrath that we're going to experience from God. They run and they hide and they go, who can stand in the midst of this? 
And that's a good question that he's going to address in the text in chapter 7. Like, who, who can actually stand in the midst of our wickedness, in the midst of our sinfulness, in the midst of God's holiness as he pours out this wrath of judgment, rightly so. And again, this can feel like to us, like, man, why is God doing these things? But any of us know the right reasons we get angry and mad about certain things. You should get angry and mad when a child is molested. It should make you angry that justice would actually happen. And a good and just God will not let those things happen in the long run. He is going to come and he's going to execute rightness and justice. And in the midst of this, what John is going to do in chapter 7, he does two other times in the book of Revelation. In chapter 10 and chapter 20, what he's going to do, he's going to do an interlude. So in the midst of all this judgment getting poured out onto the earth, he takes a sidestep and he goes, well, what about God's people in the midst of that judgment? What's happening to them? He does it again in chapter 7, he'll do it in chapter 10, and he's going to do it in chapter 20. He's going to take a different camera angle and he's going to go, what about God's people in the midst of this stuff? So that's where chapter 7 is going to start us. Look at what it says in verse 1. It says, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So again, a sealing on the forehead would be commonplace in, in the practice of, of the original readers, and a seal represented your property. It was either for protection or destruction. So this wouldn't be uncommon language to the original readers. Verse 4 says, And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And if you look down at your Bible, you see those lists of the 12 tribes of Israel. Then in verse 9, he says, After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders the four living creatures as they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. What's happening here as John takes another look at like what's happening to the saints in the midst of this, this judgment getting poured out on to the earth? What he's seeing is that these people are going to be protected now, it doesn't mean they're not going to have harm in their life. It doesn't mean there's not going to be hurt in their life. But just like the people in Exodus, this is rooted in this Passover as God is going to send judgment uh, to the people of uh, Egypt so that they can be rescued. He's saying, listen, the people that have the blood of the lamb over their doorposts are going to be passed over. This is similar language to go like, listen, I am going to ultimately protect my people doesn't mean the Israelites didn't have problems after they left. They did. doesn't mean there weren't heartache and hardship in the midst of a broken world. There was. But they have ultimate protection 
because of the sacrifice of the lamb. I think there's an interesting uh, communication technique that we find here. We also find it in chapter 5. If you were with us last week, you saw again, John hears this line of Judah. That's what he hears, but then he sees a slain lamb, just like here. He hears 144,000, but he actually sees an army that's too much to count from every tribe and tongue and nation. What is going on here? I was a visual communication in my undergrad years ago. And uh, one of the books I read postgraduate work was by an author named Shane Hips called The Hidden Power of the Electronic Culture. Shane Hips was an, uh, a Porsche advertising agent and, and he changed into a pastor. He's got a wild story, but in it, he's talking about the way we communicate. And one of the things he says, an exercise he has in the midst of the book, I think is helpful in what we're finding here because I think God is using the way John is communicating in a way for us to understand something. And here's the exercise. We're just going to do it right now, just really briefly. When you hear something, it should cause imagination to rise up in your mind and in your heart. So I'm going to say a phrase. I want you to all close your eyes. Some of you have them closed anyway. It's great. Just close your eyes for a second. And I'm going to, I'm going to make a statement. I'm going to say something. I just want you to hear it. Here's the statement. The man is old. The man is old. Okay, open your eyes. Most of you probably had an image in your head, right? Did, did most of you have an image of your head of an old man? Now, if we surveyed the whole room, how many of us would have a similar image? Probably we'd all have different ones, right? Maybe your grandparent or an amalgam of somebody that's old, or maybe you just saw an old person. You have some image in your head that it's evoked in your imagination, that you're, you're imagining something. So that's one way to communicate. But then when you see an image that the man is old, you can put that next slide up. What's happening now in this moment in communication is we're all now rallied around one same image. This is meant to not just foster imagination, but to have a communal response that we understand now. When I say the man is old, you're thinking of this. You can put that slide down. So what I think John is doing in the midst of his communication is he's hearing and he's imagining 144,000, these tribes of the Old Testament. He's going, okay, that's what God's army looked like. It looks like the Old Testament folks. But then he turns and he sees, he sees an army from every tongue and tribe and nation that's too many to count, which is a promise from Genesis 12 and Abraham and the covenant there. And they're following the lamb. I think John is trying to help us understand that this communal aspect of what the church is supposed to be is supposed to look like that. We might imagine certain things about who, who the church is, but then we get to see this collective army of people following the Lamb of God. Let's keep looking at the text because we have more clues in the midst of it. Verse 13 says, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? From where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So as we're asking this question, like who can stand in the midst of this judgment of God, in the midst of the brokenness of our world seen in chapter 6, who can stand? We see in verse 14, the ones who can stand are the ones that have been made clean by the blood of the lamb. 
The ones who can stand in the midst of this brokenness and tragedy are the ones that have been sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit. We see Paul using this language in Ephesians 1 and in Ephesians 4. He's talking about this is the sealing that if you've given your life to Christ, the Spirit now lives in you and you are sealed. You're protected. Doesn't mean bad things won't happen. They will. But it means that you're guaranteed a future that we're going to see in verses 15, 16, and 17. If you really are part of this army that walks and follows the lamb, the slain lamb, that lives differently than the rest of the world. Let's look at these results as we close in verses 15, 16, and 17. It says, therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. We're sheltered and protected. Those that have given our lives to Jesus, we've surrendered our lives to Jesus. Do you know that you are sheltered and protected because Jesus was laid bare without shelter on the cross? Do you know that you are in God's presence if you've given your life to Christ because Jesus was abandoned by the Father's presence at the cross? Do you know that you can stand in that shelter, that you can stand in his presence even in the midst of your darkest circumstances? This isn't just for the the day of the Lord when it's all said and done. This is for now because the kingdom is here and now. And in the midst of your worst circumstances, you can stand and you can have protection because of what Jesus has done. You have shelter. You don't have to run and hide. You hide in him. You find your shelter in him. You find your protection in him. Verse 16 says, They shall hunger and thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them, nor nor scorching heat. For those of us that are found in Christ, we no longer hunger or thirst for the things of the world, the things that gave us temporary satisfaction in our life, the things we chase, relationships, money, people, the things that we thought we were going to get a satisfaction from that ultimately don't. We don't have to hunger and thirst for those things anymore. We have a deeper thirst, we have a deeper hunger found in the person of Jesus. And the things that used to drain us, this language of the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, the things that used to drain us desiring death no longer drain us. We can live in a place like Phoenix that's a desert, and we can go, we can still have life because of what Jesus does in us, because of the Spirit working in us. Then verse 17 says, for the Lamb... In the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. If you're found in Jesus, if you've given your life to him, do you know that you have a shepherd that's this lamb? And he's a good shepherd in the midst of our lives. We don't have to run and hide anymore. Again, we can be honest with our faults We can be honest with the things we've messed up and the things we've done. That's why we have confession in our liturgy to go like, man, I blew it today. Man, I didn't love this person well. And you can be honest in that because you're covered with the blood of the lamb. When the father looks at you, he doesn't see your mistakes. He doesn't see your good things. He actually sees Jesus. And because of that, 
you're led to streams of living water. You have a good shepherd. Our shepherd will lead us to springs of living water. He leads us to himself. That is the only place we will find true satisfaction. It's the only place we'll find true comfort as he wipes away our tears and he says, it's okay. I'm right here. It's okay. Now, again, for us that aren't dealing with pain in the midst of our life, this feels like, well, you know, and that's where it's like we need to wake up to our reality. We need to stop trusting in what we have, and we need to go, man, I need to realize that, that in the midst of my life, in the midst of the worst brokenness of your life, he is right there beside you, and one day every tear will be wiped away. Now, this is the promise for the people that are found in Christ. This is not a promise for the people that have not given their life to Jesus, have not surrendered to the Lamb, have not given their life to Jesus. It doesn't make sense for them, but for those of us that are found in Christ, it's a promise we need to hang on to in the midst of a broken reality that we find. Who can stand in the midst of the battle we find ourselves in? All of that stuff in chapter 6 And it's real stuff. It's gnarly stuff. And at the end of the day, we're going to be running around, hiding in caves unless we're found in Jesus. Who can stand? Verse 9 tells us, verse 9 tells us in the text, who's actually standing? The people of God are actually standing because of what he has done. And if you're anything like me, um, again, sometimes I I find myself anchored in Jesus and his goodness, and I I live there, and then a lot of the times, man, I, I just don't. I get lulled to sleep from the idols of my culture. I think about what's right in front of me, my circumstances, that the waves are kind of crashing down, and I forget. I forget that I need to put my place, and and I need to stand on the rock that is Jesus. And so that's why we take communion every single week as we walk down these aisles. If you find yourself in Christ, giving your life to Christ, and man, I haven't stood on the solid ground this week. Man, I've been standing on other things. I've been standing on the approval of others. I've been standing on the things that I think are going to give me life. I've been standing on the fact that we need more money. And God goes, shift your weight. Shift your weight back to the cross. It is the only solid thing to stand on. And those of us that are Christians, they know that. We know that. But we often forget throughout the week. And then we put our weight in something or someone else, and then it gets wobbly real fast. And what the call and invitation to is this morning is go, let's put our weight back on the cross. Let's put our weight back on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And let's find our power and our source and our solid ground there. Let's pray that we do that this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, would you be with us in the midst of this challenge, God, that... um, that you would wake us up to the reality that we don't live in a playground, but we live in a battleground, that there's war and hurt and pain all around us, and sometimes we're just in such a bubble we don't see it. Would you expose it to us, and would you help us stand on the solid ground that is your son? God, would we be reminded as we walk down this aisle to take your bread and your cup, that that is what we stand on. And help us remember that one day you will make it all right again. The pain that we're experiencing in life, the pain that our our, our people that we know are experiencing in life, it will be one day all put away. And for those that are found in Christ, 
you will wipe every tear away from their eyes. Help us see it this morning. We ask it in your name. Amen. So we're going to spend some time responding. If you're new with us, we do this in several different ways. One of the ways that we respond is we're going to sing what's true, that we would actually believe that one day God will make everything right in the midst of our broken hearts, in the midst of our broken worlds, that we need healing and restoration, that one day, because God is good, he's going to make all things right and all things new. Another way that we respond is uh, we pray. And so there's a prayer space to my right, your left. If you just want to go in there and write something down, uh, we would just invite you to do that. Put it on the wall just between you and the Lord. We want this to be a space where we can pray, where we can ask God to help us. Even if you're feeling a little apathetic and you're going like, ah, I don't know. Like, ask God to change your heart. And another thing we do is we take communion every single week. This is for the followers of Christ that have given their life to him in exchange. You've committed your life to Christ, and we want to be reminded as you take a piece of bread, which represents his body given to you, and you dip it in the juice, which represents his blood for the forgiveness of your sins, just like that lamb for the people of Exodus. You have peace. You have protection. You are covered because of the work of Jesus. And if you haven't made that decision, I would just beg you. Thank you to make that decision. It's the most impactful thing you're ever going to make in your life. You can find true satisfaction in Jesus. Even if you're going like, I don't really understand. It doesn't really make sense. But you feel drawn to understanding that this is true. That's the spirit working in your heart to unveil your eyes to his beauty. Would you turn and not rely on yourself, but rely on Christ for your life? If you want to have a longer conversation, I would just encourage you to, to talk to the person that you came with or talk to one of our staff. Come find us to have that conversation because that conversation will make the difference in your life. So I'm going to pray one more time. It'll be silent for a minute. Just examine your heart in the midst of this time. And then there'll be an invitation for you to move. We'll kind of move just row by row. If you're a follower of Jesus, just come. Just hold your hands open in a posture of humility and receiving. And as that piece of bread gets placed in your hand and you dip it in the juice, would you say, God, would you help me stand only on you? Help me stop standing on the things that I think give me life. Help me turn from those things and help me stand on you. And you can take it here in the prayer space or wherever you feel comfortable. Let's respond well to the goodness of who God is this morning. God, would you be with us in our time of response? Speak to our hearts, not just to our minds. Help us realize that in you is where we actually can stand. Everywhere else will fall. Be with us this morning, Jesus. We ask it in your name. Amen.